Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Bill Schlegel lived in Israel for 34 years, much of that time spent studying and then teaching about the geography of the scriptures. In this interview, he provides three reasons why every Bible student should study the land of Israel. First off, historical accuracy. Secondly, archaeological accuracy. And lastly, geographical accuracy. And he'll get into each of those topics in some depth. He also talks about his upcoming tour to Israel, March 19th to April 2nd in 2020, and you can get more information about that either in the show notes for this episode or on restudio.org. Lastly, he weighs in a little on the modern situation between the Israelis and the Palestinians that we talked about last week. Here now is Interview 53, Why Knowing the Land of Israel Matters, with Bill Schlegel. Welcome, Bill Schlegel. So glad to have you on Restitutio today. Sean, great to be with you. Tell us a little bit about your life. What are you up to these days? I would like to mention a website that a friend and I are developing. It's called the One God Report. Yeah. We've got, uh, there'll be some topical themes, but occasional updates of uh, issues and topics concerning One God, like we talked about the history, the development of the concept of the Trinity, and talked about does Jesus have a God? And Within a day or so, I hope to put up different links and articles to the idea of the pre-existence or not of Jesus, the Messiah. So check it out. It's, I think it's another way that people can become familiar with, exposed to, try to understand where we're coming from. We're very biblically minded. We're interpreting the scriptures, I think, in the way that they're supposed to be interpreted. Yeah, that's one of the things we've been working on. This summer, we've been to lots of different camps. So at a camp in Arkansas family camp there and just recently at another camp in uh, indiana called fuel where there are over 200 people there and gave a talk about the land of israel and how the lord made a promise of land to people and he's gonna make good on a promise of land to others that he's made and i'm hoping to see you just this weekend yeah i'm looking forward to that there in ohio yeah this website onegodreport.com it is uh would you say it's like a magazine in the sense that it's you publish a new version of it every so often on a new topic? Somewhat. For people that are familiar with the Drudge Report, the news outlet, where Matt Drudge just links to articles, gives a little short kind of catchy headline, doesn't really do any commentary, we copied his format. Okay. So three columns, and you kind of, I think basically if I was looking at it, I'd scan it, I'd say, oh, that looks like an interesting article. Click on that one, come back, look over the rest of the headlines say, oh, that looks interesting. Click on that one. So yes, they'll, the idea right now is that there will be some topical kind of thrust to it every now and then, but that doesn't mean that it only exclusively, like I said, the next topic I'm, I'm getting ready to put a bunch of links to from people like you, you've written articles, you've had videos or Dale Tuggy and lots of other uh, folks writing blogs these days. So there will be a, a somewhat of a topical emphasis on it. But that'll, you know, every now and then we'll put in something different too. Some article comes up that I say, oh, that's a good one. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that right away on, on the One God Report. It can be another way in which people can at least 
get some exposure to the idea of the one God and his Messiah that God raised from the dead. You and I were very biblically minded. We want to know what the scriptures say. And most people just have never been exposed to another way of thinking. I hadn't been when I was a Trinitarian for 30 something years, right? I'd never right. even thought about these possibilities. So yeah. that's the idea of the one God report. Let's look, take a look, measure the scriptures, be a good Berean. Don't be afraid of the truth. Like somebody I know constantly says, <laughs> take a look, see what it says. Very good. Uh, so today we're talking about the land of Israel. And I want to begin with this question. First off, why do you think this is such an important subject to you? I mean, you've spent so much of your life studying the land, living in the land, thinking about the land, talking about the land. I mean, what, why does this matter? The land of Israel is an evidence that the scriptures are true. Okay. The biblical narrative insists that what is being discussed, what is being presented is grounded in reality. It's part of our earth. And you can get on an airplane and go visit the land of Israel. It's not a make-believe place. It's a real place. It's concrete. It's actual. It's part of our existence. And the scriptures are, are insistent that what is being discussed, what is being presented involves real places real events real people and with the implication that a real god is involved so in a lot of ways the fact that the land of the bible is still there and we can go visit these places and see the the finest details uh, connected to the geography and evidences that these places are real this is uh, an evidence like peter says that we have not followed cleverly devised myths very good so you're, what I hear you saying is that understanding the land, visiting the land, getting acquainted with geography and culture, climate, language, these, these sorts of aspects of the land, it really does help build our faith that this is not some fairy tale that, you know, like uh, Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth or something, you know, it, there's no such place as that or uh, Narnia, right? I mean, this is, this is not like that. These are actual places. And even if not all of them are identified today by archaeologists, would you say most of them are? By far. Yeah. Yeah, here's what I would say. I would break down the accuracy of the biblical narrative into three categories. And the first one might be the historical accuracy of the scriptures. Uh -huh. Let me give a couple of examples. For the, that we can see that the, the Bible's history is grounded in the same history that we know of from other secular sources. And, and this one, nobody's going to argue with. The coming of Assyria, this nation of Assyria, in the 700s BC to come, and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And we've got lots of evidences to that effect. It's very interesting to note that the people and nation of Israel are mentioned in, in an Old Testament context by its neighbors, in many cases, its enemies, when the ancient nation of Israel was at its a low point. For instance, you've got Israel mentioned by an Egyptian pharaoh in around 1200 BC. It's roughly around the time of the judges and the judge Ehud, uh -huh. when Israel was already at, at a low point. And you've got an Egyptian pharaoh that mentions Israel is conquered. Okay? Mm -hmm. And then you have the Assyrians that mention Israel and lots of personages involved in the Bible. 
right? You've got the name of Ahab mentioned. He mentions Omri, but he almost also mentions Ahab the Israelite. Okay, mm -hmm. and you have Jehu, the northern kingdom of Israel, depicted on an inscription from Assyria and named. And you have also at around the same time, it's a low point in Israel's history, you have an inscription where the Arameans mention, and this is cool, and what's called the Tel Dan inscription dates around 840 BC. Okay. So at about the same time that the Assyrians are starting to come in and they're battling with Ahab, then we have a Aramean king who also mentions Israel. This is the Tel Dan inscription, a very important find. Dates to around 840 BC, where an Aramean king, Hazael, mentions the king of Israel. And check this out, the house of David. Now the word mm -hmm. house means the dynasty. So he's mentioning the dynasty of David. And, and you have the, the king of Judah, the dynasty of David at this time, teamed up with the northern kingdom trying to fight the Arameans. So this is a very important inscription where you've got this Aramean king mentioning king of Israel, the house of David, shows us that David was a real person and that his dynasty continued. This is about 100 years plus after the time that David lived. So you've got all these extra biblical accounts of Israel's neighbors, usually enemies. Another one is the Moabite inscription, which also mentions the Israelites and it mentions the name of Jehovah in the yeah. text and it mentions the name of, again, the house of David. So in the time that the Assyrians are starting to come and it's a low point for Israel, you've got these mentionings of the people of Israel in this land and this, it correlates with this, the biblical description. Let me take that a little bit further when the Assyrians are coming into the land now in the, in the late 700s. By this time, the northern kingdom has been conquered. By the way, you have an Assyrian king that claims that he was responsible for the conquest of the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Uh -huh. And you have the archaeological evidence of this conquest. And now the Assyrians come and they try to attack Judah. And the Assyrian king at this time, his name is Sennacherib. And the king of Judah is Hezekiah. And Sennacherib boasts of coming in and conquering 46 cities of Judah. And he mentions Hezekiah. He says, Hezekiah, the king, I made like a bird in a cage in his capital. Mm, yeah. Now, for some reason, Sennacherib didn't conquer Judah. He didn't conquer King Hezekiah. And it's amazing because this empire has come from Assyria, right? Iraq today. And they've conquered Lebanon and Syria, the northern kingdom of Israel, down the coast, they're heading to Egypt. And somehow, little Judah, Hezekiah, holds out in his hill country. And the biblical description correlates with the Assyrian. you got all these Assyrian records that talk about Sennacherib coming in. And the biblical description, same thing. Look, I'll, I'll give you the name of a site, Lachish. Most people have never heard of this site, Lachish, but it's very important. And you can go out and find it archaeologically. It's important in this account because the Bible says that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, finished conquering Lachish, and now he threatens Hezekiah in Judah and says, give up. Well, the Lord interrupts. Because of the faith of Hezekiah, the Lord Yahweh, yod vav comes and decimates the Assyrian forces. And by the way, I think there's a parallel here to the decimation of the Egyptian forces during the time of the Exodus. You have... Remember, after Israel crossed through the Reed Sea, they went out and they saw the dead bodies on the seashore. That's Exodus 14.30. There's a parallel. The angel of the Lord, a messenger of God, goes out and decimates the Assyrian forces in Judah. And then the text says in Isaiah 37.36, as an example, they went out and there are all the dead bodies. Bingo. Okay, For a Jewish person reading the text, that's a parallel 
to the destruction of the biggest empire's military that was on the surface of the earth at the time by Yahweh, the God of Israel. Like we're to see that, whoa, in the time of Hezekiah, the Lord somewhat broke protocol. Because if you look at the scriptures, there's three times where there's a, a real concentration of miraculous events in the scripture. They're somewhat limited. Not to say that, you know, they can't find one here and there. But if you think about it, there's really three times when the Lord miraculously breaks through and shows, hey, you know, it's kind of like I say the song that was popular a few years ago, Hello, It's Me. Okay? This is the Lord saying, Hello, It's Me. In the time uh -huh. of the Exodus and conquest, concentration of miracles. Okay. Yeah. In the time of Elijah, Elijah and Elisha. Okay, there's yep. this concentration of miracles. And then with Jesus and the apostles, boom, mm -hmm. concentration of miracles. It's the Lord saying, hello, it's me, pay attention, right? But there's yeah. one time that's, especially where the Lord sort of breaks protocol and it's here. It's during the time of the Assyrian conquest where once again, these, the, the strongest military on the earth was decimated. Sennacherib, he has to boast about something. He's the Assyrian king. He goes back to his palace in Nineveh and decorates his throne room not with his conquest of Jerusalem, but with his conquest of the city of Lachish. And he says it, Sennacherib, king of the universe, king of Assyria, seated on his throne as the booty of Lachish is prayed before, not the booty of Jerusalem, right? He had to go and mm, Interesting, yeah. So I'm saying all this because we learn the close correlation of the Bible with extra biblical history, and it, it grounds it in reality. Right. Once we see how much this sits right there in what we know historically to have happened on this earth. So you've got the historical accuracy. And then I would say there's another aspect to this accuracy when you are able to kind of study the land of Israel. And that's the archaeological accuracy. As you mentioned, there's ruins of hundreds of city and town locations that have been found. And some of these are the like the main biblical cities that we know in the scriptures, like Shechem, the first place that Abraham was promised the land and where Joshua goes and confirms the covenant and lots of events at Shechem, where the first capital of the northern king was at Samaria, where Ahab and Omri had their capital, Hebron, where David had his capital, Hatzor, biggest Canaanite city in the land where Josh was conquered. You know, you got these big cities, Shiloh, they're excavating right now, again, where the tabernacle first set up, Megiddo, this big Canaanite city. Not only those big cities, but also lesser known cities, some of them quite important in the Bible that when we're living overseas, you don't really hear about it as much, but like Azekah and Bet Shemesh, Gath, the Philistines, they've been, they've been excavating lately. And I mentioned Lachish. Lachish is a very important city, but then also these small little towns and hamlets. I'll give you an example of a city that I live nearby, Kiryat Arim. Lots of biblical history there. Hundreds of these locations mentioned in the scripture have been found by the archaeologists. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see every time that archaeologists, and many of them are secular, uh, but they'll have a certain respect for the scriptures. Anytime that there's a new site being dug, the archaeologists inevitably go to the Bible and say, okay, which site is this in the Bible? Let me give you an example. About 10 years ago, uh, a somewhat new site was excavated on the hill just above the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah is where David fought Goliath. Right. And they find this town and they see it dates to really around the time of David, which is significant in its own sense because... They're showing that David was not just a local chieftain, you know, sitting in some small hill country, but that he had a certain influence and extension. Okay? So that's important. But then what do the archaeologists do? They start to say, okay, what town is this that's mentioned in the Bible? 
All right? They know that the Bible is right about these things, or let's say geographically. So then when they find archaeological ruins, they say, okay, which side is this? And there's two towns that are mentioned in that account of David fighting Goliath in 1st Samuel chapter 17 that we were not sure where they're at. One of them is called Sha'arim, and the other one is called Ephes Damim. So right away, the archaeologists, they start to say, okay, and geographers, what town is this? But they go to the scriptures and say, well, it's got to be, it's probably either one of those two that we're not sure, right? The scriptures say the Philistines were encamping. Open up and read in 1 Samuel 17. The Philistines were encamped between Azekah and Soko, which belongs to Judah, in Ephes Damim. Bingo. Okay, some say, oh, this must be Ephes Damim. It's right between Azekah and Soko. Other archaeologists say, no, hey, we found two gates here. This could be Sha'arim, which means gates. When the Philistines were defeated, they fled on the road of Sha'arim. But you see, the archaeological accuracy, another way in which archaeology confirms it is you've got these parallels with other non-biblical inscriptions that have been found. Look at names of people from the scriptures have been found in inscriptions, on some, a lot of them on clay seal impressions like recently there's a seal impression found in jerusalem just near the temple mount of hezekiah oh, and yeah. another one just feet away from him isaiah okay huh. now we don't know if it's probably relating to hezekiah again we don't know for sure we don't know for sure if this is isaiah the isaiah the prophet there's even the phrase navi right which means prophet but it's missing one letter so could be you know from the town of nav or no and this kind of thing we don't know if it's really the prophet Isaiah, but it's amazing that you've got these, the context of the, of the scriptures that, that are found here. And some of these seal impressions of names mentioned from the Bible, they're less known. I mean, I'll give you a couple of names. Baruch the scribe, is that, is that one? Yeah, but yeah, exactly. Baruch is one. Now that particular clay impression was not found in an archaeological context. It showed up on the antiquities market. So then you start to say, well, is it a fake? Most people believe it's real, that one. But for instance, you've got uh, the uh, inscription of Gamar Yahu, Ben Shafan, who's also mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. And a couple of guys that were against Jeremiah. Okay, one guy by the name of Yuhal, son of Shlam Yahu. He's against Jeremiah. And Gedaliah, son of Pashur, is against Jeremiah. So, you know, these somewhat obscure figures from the book of Jeremiah, here we find in an archaeological context 2,600 years later. Why? Probably because the city of Jerusalem was burnt and these clay seals were hardened and they're buried. And now it's, a, you know, you got to say that's pretty amazing. You come by 2,600 years later and wow. find the yeah. names of these people that are mentioned in the scripture so you have all this confirmation from the archaeological record and like i say to me the plethora of site names that have been discovered and, and it's a it's a whole science it's a whole study okay let's figure out what site this is when you find an archaeological ruin and some are more certain than others there's no doubt about it and there's a certain degree of probability when you locate these sites sometimes you're going to be right sometimes you're going to be wrong but the overall picture is, oh my goodness, the scriptural record matches up with the archaeological excavations, match up with the, what the scripture said. And look, you're always going to have archaeologists that will interpret the archaeology different. And there are presuppositions involved. I'll give you an example of that, the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho was excavated, the ruin of the Tell of Jericho was excavated, among others, by a British archaeologist in the 1930s. His name is John Garstang. He said, here's, here's the wall that collapsed in the time of Joshua. Now we see an earthquake evidence in the mud brick wall on the top falling down below 
the revetment stone wall. This is Joshua City. And, he, and, and he, he also saw some of the sequence of, of events that then there was a burning after and abandonment and all that there's grain preserved there that whoever conquered didn't take the grain, all these kind of things that matched up with the, the conquest of Joshua. But then in the 1950s, another archaeologist comes along and says, no, uh uh, that Canaanite city was actually destroyed 150 years before Joshua. So now oh. you say, okay, what's the deal? Who's right? Now, there are presuppositions that here, here, even politics gets involved. Look at the date of those dates. The 1930s, you got a guy saying, here's evidence of the Israelite conquest. 1950s, somebody else comes along and says, no, 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 there's no evidence of Jews conquering Jericho. What happened in between? That's when the people came back to the land, yeah. Exactly. Israel becomes a state, so you have some political reason to deny a Jewish you know, conquest like the Bible says and all this kind of thing. So it's a, there's always interpretation involved. But the entire picture, archaeological picture is, wow, there's an amazing correlation between the Bible's description of towns, cities, peoples, etc., and what we find in the scripture. Now, the third aspect of the accuracy of the biblical narrative is actually the one that I know a little bit more about than the others, and that's the geographical accuracy. I see. And like I say, the, there's hundreds of city-town locations known. And in the 34-something years that I've studied Bible geography, I actually wrote a book okay, called The Satellite Bible Atlas. People can look it out, check it out. I like the idea that the base map is satellite. It's real. Okay? And then the biblical events are marked out on a, a, a base satellite map. And you can do that. Okay, sometimes you have to think, okay, maybe where did the guy go from here to here? We're not really sure. But you can, you can do that again because we're talking about our earth. It's reality. You can write a book called the Atlas of the Bible or the Satellite Bible Atlas. You can write it. Can you write a book on the Atlas of Hinduism mm. or the Atlas of Buddhism or even a, an Atlas of Islam? It, it might be something like the growth of it, right? How, you know, you might have a few sites in Islamic conquest and this kind of thing, but it's a different kind of an aspect. It's, the Bible has so much geography. It's so detailed geographically. And I think the reason that it is so detailed is there's an emphasis on, hey folks, we're talking about our earth, real places, real people, real events, Right? And in some ways, you can say the people and the events are not here anymore. Okay? And that's the history. That's a little bit of the archaeology. You can, you can deny the history. You can interpret the archaeology different and say, well, no, the Bible's got this wrong and this kind of thing. But nobody, and I mean nobody, like I say, in the 34 years that I've been looking at this, I have never heard any scholar say the Bible's geography is wrong. Not right. one soul it's there. You can go and see it. And when you come to the scriptures now, and, you, and you're not really sure maybe about a site location, you come to the text, you know that the problem is not with the scripture. The problem is with us, with our own, let's say, ignorance or lack of knowledge. Everybody, all the scholars, every archaeologist acknowledges that the scripture's geography is right to the finest of details. And I mean, that, that should be able to give us some confidence that, hey, this book, correct. Okay. Can I give you an example of this? Yeah, I like please. To, I like to use the description in the Bible of the northern border of the tribe of Judah, which would be the southern border of Benjamin and partly the southern border of Dan, too. This is from the book of Joshua, chapter 15, starting in verse 8, where the border it's described as going in the Jerusalem area to a spring. It's down in the Kidron Valley called En Rogel, the spring of Rogel. Then the boundary goes up, 
from the valley of the son of Hinnom. Okay, that's the, the Hinnom Valley on the south side of Jerusalem. On the southern shoulder of Jebus, that is Jerusalem. The boundary goes to the top of the mountain that overlies against the valley of Hinnom on the west. The northern end of the valley of Rephaim. So it's describing a hill with the valley of Hinnom on one side and the valley of Rephaim on another. Then the boundary extends from the top of that mountain to the spring of the waters of Naphtoah. And from there to the cities of Mount Ephron. Then the boundary bends to Baala, which is Kiryat Jarim. And the boundary circles west of Baala to Mount Seir and passes over the northern shoulder of Mount Jarim, that is Kesselon, and then goes down to Bet Shemesh and passes along by Timnah. Then the boundary goes along the shoulder, which is north of Ekron, and then it goes out to the sea. So you see the detail there? Right? Yes, yeah. I mean, who, whoever wrote this was a local, that's for sure. And they get it right. Nobody denies. When people come look at it today, they take. They know that he's getting it right. I mean, I, you can go and see these places. You can see when he says that the border crosses over to Mount Seir. There's a valley that's crossing over, and it goes down to Bet Shemesh. Elevation difference. It's right. Okay. It's very exact. Mm -hmm. Very detailed. And nobody doubts this accuracy. Yeah. What's so interesting about it too is that these sorts of details are precisely the sorts of information that most Christians don't focus on, don't pay attention to, and, you know, basically discard because they just seem so foreign, so irrelevant, so hard to pronounce that they don't see the value of them. And what I hear you saying is like, no, 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 these, these are earmarks of historical reliability and eyewitness accuracy. Absolutely. It's authenticity. And the scripture is the expert on this, right? It's in a different yeah. language. All these site names are, are basically in Hebrew, right? So because of that, it makes it a little bit difficult for foreigners to say, okay, what is this? You know, instead, it's something I don't understand, so you tend to skip over. But I think still a person knows that, hey, wow, these are real places. And, you know, honestly, personally, Sean, this was the reason that I, when I was in college and graduated from college, I knew I wanted to go and live in Israel. I wanted to be certain of the reality, come back to, them, uh, to that again, right? the reality of the biblical narrative. If this is real, if the, what the Bible's describing is real, I should be able to go and see these places. And you want to go to Gibeon. You know, there's some archaeological things that have been found that I remember seeing a picture of a pool carved in the stone, a pool of Gibeon. Now, maybe it may not be, but it, it could likely be the, the very pool where the remnants of Saul's army and then David's army gathered and fought, right? Under Abner and Joab, the yep, uh, commanders. They come to the pool, which is in Gibeon. And I saw that picture and said, wow, wow, these, this is real. These are real places. And, you know, so even though I didn't know what Gibeon was or where it was and all this kind of stuff, there's a certain sense in which that, hey, it's telling me that this is part of our earth. I'm telling you stuff that I think the Bible is claiming this is a real event happened to real people at a real time in, our, in Earth's history. If you're asking about going to Israel, by the way, part of what, the reason we want to talk is I am, Lord willing, going to lead a trip to Israel next spring, March 19th to April 2nd, 2020. People mm -hmm. want to find out about, maybe you can put a link to the brochure or something in yeah, your sure. show notes. Uh, or just come find me you know, on Facebook or whatever. And, or look on the One God Report. There's a, an events column in there. This trip is a little bit longer than most. It's 15 days. Because I looked at it and I said, wow. People are going to pay to fly over there. You know, we got to go here. We got to go here. So, you know, most trips are like they try to get it within a week. So you add a couple of weekends and you get nine days. 
And that is convenient, I have to say. Right? Most people can't get off for two weeks. Uh, and it makes it a little bit more expensive, although this trip maybe, I think it's priced pretty good. A trip to the land of Israel, it can be an aid to Bible study and knowledge. Besides getting this idea of the, the confidence in what we believe, and we believe that we're not following cleverly devised myths by the there's something that happened to me when I'm in the land of Israel that a real human person predominated, I would say, over this divine aspect. I knew Jesus is a human being. Real Trinitarian doesn't say that. They'll only say, oh, he took on humanity, which means he's not a human being. But being in the land of Israel, it took me 34 years to learn it, right? That this myth of a God-man, that God taking on flesh, that that's a myth, okay? So in Peter, like Peter says in Second Peter, we're not following cleverly devised myths. And it's kind of interesting to see, as soon as I learned that, and it was in a couple of months, that, okay, now the Lord says, now, I got other things. You, you're you're going to be back in America maybe for a little while. I can, Lord willing, I can see myself returning at some point to the land of Israel. I got a couple of kids that live there still, et cetera, et cetera. I'm having a little trouble adjusting to American life. There's differences in culture that uh, occur with any international move. Yeah. Here's, here's what I say about coming to the land of Israel. It's an aid. A trip there is an aid to Bible study and, and Bible knowledge. Why? The land itself. And it's people, I think, even there now, both Arabs and Jews, they can be a living object lesson. It's something like right there. When a person comes to a biblical location, they're naturally curious to want to know what happened here, right? Let's say I bring you up to Kiryat Yarim. Most people don't have never heard of it, right? It means the village of the forest. But as soon as you come there, you want to know, okay, what happened here? And you know what? There's a lot that happened there. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was for 20 years, and then Samuel starts his ministry. And then some decades later, David's going to bring it from Kiryat Yarim, the village of the forest, into Jerusalem. And there's a prophet from there in the time of Jeremiah that was saying the same things that Jeremiah was saying. You're going into exile. Submit to Babylon. This is the Lord's plan. If you don't, you got nothing but sword, famine, and sickness. And the king, Jehoiakim, sent and killed the guy, right, for speaking the wow. truth. It's like Jeremiah, right? He's imprisoned and, and put in stocks and all this kind of stuff because he's speaking the truth. So this is Kiryat Jarem. So once you go to a site, there's a natural inclination. Hey, I want to know what's there. Look at, I got a kid. He's 15 years old. Does he come to me ever and say, hey, what happened here? Because I'm over here in the West and he's looking at his cell phone and he's playing soccer and whatever else. <laughs> but as soon as you get to Israel, all of a sudden people are thinking. Well, the Bible yeah. is predominant. It's just in the air kind of thing. You're, you're thinking about it because these events happen there. So there's a natural desire to want to know what happened at a place. And as soon as you have that, you're going to recall the event. You're going to take the Bible out. You're going to read some of those events. You're going to discuss them. So it gives you a platform, right, in which you can speak and learn about these things. And then in addition, I think it helps a person to remember the event and the issues that were there. Because you've been there, you have a, you have a, have a real picture of the place. You might have a smell even of the place or the temperature, the, the heat, the cold, the rain that imprints on our mind or helps us to remember a biblical event or the chronology. I can have a concrete idea. Well, this happened here. And then he went over there and that happened. And then he went over here and that happened. Then he came to Judea and this happened. It's because of, I've had the, the ability to be there and think about the things on site. Now, here's another thing, Sean. I think this is a somewhat unique opportunity in mankind's history, that so many people can visit the land of the Bible. It's really only been for, what, 30, 40, 50 years. Air travel was not common when I was a kid growing mm -hmm. up, right? 
But now everybody flies on airplanes and transatlantic flight is, it's easy in a sense, right? And relatively inexpensive. So this is, it's only been in these last decades that people can so easily and comfortably, the hotels are nice, the food is good. Mark Twain went and visited the land in the, in the 1880s. And you know, here he has to go over on a ship in the first place and then they're setting up tents and he gets deathly sick and you know, there's yeah. a taxi yeah. and this kind of stuff. But now you can comfort, relatively comfortably go over and see the reality of all these things and learn some of the things that we've been talking about here now. In my own personal life, this experience has helped me understand the scriptures and who Yudhevave Yahweh, the God of the scriptures, is and who his Messiah is. It's helped me. Right? I don't know if I would have come to this understanding if I always just stayed in America and been influenced only by the American philosophical Western, as you well know, a lot of it Greek kind of thinking, right? If that's, if that's all I'd heard, but going into Israel and you start to learn things about the biblical mindset better and the biblical metaphor. I mean, come on, coming down from heaven in the Jewish mind is not a literal idea of stuff physically descending from God's side to earth. No, it's a, it's a metaphorical way to say this is of God, that God is behind this or being sent from God doesn't mean that you had some pre-existence in, in heaven and now that you're here on earth, something like this, right? Where in the Western world, you read that and you say, oh, wow, he came down from heaven. You know, he must have had some pre-existence. No, you can see the things in the scriptures. And for me, you know what the key was? I think I've said this before. When I understood that the term son of God does not mean God the son, boom, that made me think, hold on a second here. You mean Nathaniel, he, the first day he saw Jesus in John chapter 1, first day he saw Jesus, he knew that was God in the flesh when he said, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. How did Nathaniel know he was God in the flesh? That's not what Nathaniel was thinking. He knows that son of God, Nathaniel knew, that son of God is a title for Messiah. It's a Jewish biblical title based on Old Testament scriptures. It doesn't mean God the Son. I was able to think about these things because you're starting to think, I don't know of a better way to say it, just more biblically and not with this extra biblical stuff. Look at Sean. You know better than most that these ideas of a dual nature Jesus and a tri-personal Godhead, they're not from Jerusalem. They're developed outside of the city of Jerusalem, be it in Egypt, or in Turkey, right, in Cappadocia, these ideas were developed outside of Jerusalem. The scripture says the law, the teaching will go forth from Jerusalem. Any teaching that's, whose origin is not in that city, be aware of, be careful of it. Yeah. Because the Gentiles have, we've messed it up. We blew it. We took the scriptures and the description of who Messiah is, we, we twisted it, we changed it into different forms and different understandings. And we've really messed it up. And I think that the Lord is going to straighten us out. Right. So again, all these things, because I was able to live there, my mind sort of got away from these twisted ways of thinking that the Cappadocian fathers of Turkey have defined for us who God is. Come on. Are we really going to depend on these Gentiles who lived in the late 300s AD to tell us, who the God of Israel and his Messiah are. If that's what we're doing, maybe step back a second and say, you know what? Maybe they got it wrong. 
Maybe they really don't know. Maybe this stuff about a dual nature. See, that's, this is a myth. And the two natures, a God, man, it's a myth. And most Christians that I know, they don't really, they don't think about it much. Uh, we know that Jesus is a, is a man. Okay, you pin down and say, oh yeah, he's God too. I just looked at a video yesterday, the 10, 10 reasons why Jesus is God. And he, you know, you put this first and you put that first. One verse from the book of John, one from First Peter and one from Romans, etc. They supposedly claim that Jesus is God. Come on. There's so many other ways to interpret those particular verses that are being better ways that are being presented to show that Jesus is God. There's a better way. And then you don't get into all this mess. How do, are these two things so connected for you? Because, uh, you know, I, I'm not really sure how doctrinal belief about who Jesus is and the land, how those two are so connected in your mind. Living there enabled me to think outside of the theological box. Uh-huh. You run into other ideas. And the Trinitarian wasn't the first thing to go for me, right? One of the things that I realized was that we're not going to heaven. And uh-huh. see, this is a very Jewish idea. In Trinitarianism, since we're influenced by the Greeks, we want to escape this world and drift off as a spirit to heaven. This is not a, this is not a biblical idea. It's not a Jewish idea. And, you know, you, in discussing things with Jewish people, you learn. No, our hope is the resurrection from the dead. And and even like, I'll I'll tie in something with Hebrew. The word for Hebrew, for man or mankind, Adam, right? That's first man, Adam, Adam, Adam. Uh What's the word for ground? Adama, same root. Man and ground are the same word, basically, in Hebrew. We are made from the ground, and this is our domain, and the Lord says, look, I'm, I'm making you the, my chief representative. You're reflecting my image on this earth. This is our hope. Our hope is not to drift off in some spirit state to heaven. Scripture never says that. Our hope is resurrection on a renewed earth in which righteousness dwells. There's one human being in heaven. And I think that that one human being is to return to earth. That's Jesus the Messiah resurrected, glorified, right? He's a man. His domain is ultimately this earth. Right? You see how that thinking, I, I don't know if I would have ever been able to come to that if I hadn't been exposed, if I hadn't been outside of the, the Western Greek Trinitarian box. Maybe others would. But. Yeah, your experience there is, is very interesting because mm-hmm. one of the main points that you've made here is that the land is real, the sites are real, the people are real, the history is real, and there's a sort of ultra reality, uh, maybe that's not the right word for it, but a, a certain authenticity to how you think about the land and how really anyone who actually visits starts to think about the land as opposed to people who read it in a book and then imagine it. There's a difference, and mm-hmm. I, I think that imagination uh, which obviously is a great gift from God, but that imagination can get us into trouble because then we start imagining other destinations to go and this whole idea of going to heaven. And, you know, we kind of dehumanize Jesus, maybe with good intention because of love or affection, whatever, adoration. But then we elevate him beyond the sort of Adam characteristic you were just talking about. You see that really in the artwork over the centuries where Jesus becomes more and more of an icon 
literally and figuratively and less and less of a real human being. Yeah, absolutely. So to sum up, maybe Sean, too, there is one other aspect, too, that I think that okay. the land of Israel, and I know it maybe relates a little bit to a podcast you had recently, and I'm not really the best one to speak on this. You had a gal named Gloria has Palestinian background. And I would just say, here, here's another thing. From my perspective, the existence of the Jewish people to our very day is an evidence that the God of the scriptures is the true God. Now, nobody's saying that the modern state of Israel is perfect and, you know, everybody treats each other all the time with perfect uh, kindness and all these kind of things. But from a human historical perspective, I'm not going to do it now, but I think a case can be made that Israel has a right to be there. there ex the existence of the Jewish people is evidence to this very day that the God of the scriptures is the true God. Because I was reading one chapter in the book of Jeremiah earlier today. And it's, and this is just one example, but it's over and over and over again. And you can see the same kind of discussion in the New Testament. But as an example, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, thus says Yahweh, okay, this is the God of the scriptures. He gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. He stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Now I take a look outside my window right now and I see the sunlight by day. Okay. I see the fixed order. The, the waves are still there in their spot. This is Yahweh who's put this together and maintains it. And then he says, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. There's a promise that God makes. Yes, in the scriptures, Israel is disciplined, they're exiled, but there's always this hope. You have a hope, you have an end. There's going to be restoration. Now we wrestle with, okay, how can this modern state of Israel be aligned with the biblical description of a restoration? And it's not so simple. The scriptures say quite a few times, Israel, descendants of Jacob, you are my witnesses. And I think that's in a couple of different ways. One is they are witnessing who Yahweh is through the works that they've done, that Yahweh has done for them and through them, passing through the Reed Sea, conquering the land. As it says in the Psalm, Lord Yahweh has done great things for us, restoring them from Babylon. They see this God is the true God. And they're also witnesses that the Gentiles can see, you know what? Wow, the Lord has done great things for them. This people is, is, is an evidence for the Gentile world that yod heh vav -He is the true God. And I think that, I believe, that they will still be used in that way. That the relationship that the Jews have with Yahweh, and by the way, with the land of Israel, is going to be an evidence for the Gentile world that, ooh, this is Yahweh. You will know that I am yod heh vav -He. I don't get the impression from Gloria or people that are advocating for, you know, a better treatment in the, among the Palestinian people. I don't get the impression that they're, they're saying, get rid of all the Jews from Israel and, and send them out. I'm sure there are some ex extremists that, that hold that point of view. And, uh, but that's not, that's not at all what I was picking up from her. I think she was, she was advocating for uh, just better treatment or equality. 
And I, you know, I'm not smart enough to figure out the politics of all that. You know, there's so much animosity built up over so many decades of bloodshed. But uh, my big point is like, what about the Christians? You know, those are my brothers, those are my sisters, and they're over there suffering. So, uh, you know, that's, that's really more my focus with it. Like I said, I'm not smart enough to, to give any kind of political solution that I think will work. I yeah. think it well, would be great if they could both live in the land <laughs> in peace. Yeah, no, you're absolutely yeah. right. There's lots of political aspects to it. But Christians in the land of Israel, they're actually doing quite well, right? They're full citizens. They vote in the Knesset. They have members in the, the Israeli parliament. There's a Christian Arab that's a Supreme Court member. So, and there's Muslims too, right? I live next door to a Israeli Arabic Muslim village, full Israeli citizenship, voted, did well, prospering, huge houses. I think maybe you're, you're thinking specifically maybe about the population in the so-called territories, right? The West Bank and these kind of things. It's more complicated. And like I say, it, it's, it will take more time. It's not a sound bite thing. It's not, you show one house being demolished or you shouldn't, it's not also not just, you show one terrorist coming in and doing this and that. It, it's more complicated. And I like yeah. to say, like, even in the territories, the so-called West Bank, compare what's gone on in the last 10 years for the Arab Christians in places like Egypt or in Syria or in Lebanon. In Israel, it's been relatively stable. The Israeli political entity has been a stabilizing influence for not only Jews in the, that land or in that area, but in, including the Arab people, the population in the territories and even Jordan. Let, just take a look. You go and see some homes in Ramallah right now. Go and see the economy going on in Ramallah right now. Okay, of course, it's not, it's not perfect, right? Because the, they're, they're disputed territories. So it's not like it's going to be perfect. Look at I have things to complain about with my government. All the more so if I was in a territory that wasn't really considered to be my government, right? Would I complain against it? I got all kinds of things to complain about with the IRS and how the government works, right? Our tendency is going to be against whoever, look at, look at how many people hate the current president, right? And all the yeah. harsh words that are directed to him. All the more so, don't you think that's going to be the human nature? If you're in an area where you think you don't have uh, total rights and you, know, and you don't have total rights you don't have rights and like in the palestinian situation like i say it's complex it takes more time that one of the things that the palestinian population should do is simply say hey you know what let us be israeli citizens i'm glad that a person like gloria doesn't espouse the removal of the jews from the land because that's not always been the case all right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for saying that and uh, weighing in a little bit. We uh, do want to hear both sides, you know, a little bit. And, you know, this is not, uh, I'm not sure if I'll have future episodes on this subject, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. I'm certainly open yeah. to that. Um, uh, what would you like to say by way of uh, conclusion here about the land? It's a real place. It's not make-believe. The land of the Bible is a real place. The scriptures tell us that God promised land to human beings. And he made good on that promise in one shape, form, or another to the descendants of Abraham. Even in past times, I think there's, there's an aspect in which he will still do it even in, in future time. He made good on the promise of land to human beings. 
and we see it, we can see it concretely done, be it in the time of the conquest with Joshua or the, the reign of David and Solomon, where now that land that God promised to the fathers was possessed. Here's another promise of God. He says, it's not to angels that the Lord has subjected the world to come, but to man. He's made a promise again of land to human beings. The meek shall inherit the earth. So the promise and fulfillment of land promise to the descendants of Abraham is a paradigm. It's an example that we can now take confidence in that Yahweh has made a promise of land, an earth, a new earth, a re rejuvenated earth in which the humble will possess. That's another way in which the land and man are connected. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Bill. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk with me today. Oh, always my pleasure, Sean. That's it for this interview. Just to let you know, I do have some really good links in the show notes for this episode, which you can get in your device or on restitudio.org. Just look for interview 53, Why Knowing the Land of Israel Matters, and you'll be able to find a link to Schlegel's new website, One God Report, as well as his blog, Land and Bible, and his book, The Satellite Bible Atlas, which I used personally last year on my trip to Israel and found it to be a great help, and I'm pretty sure it will be required if you're going with him next year in the spring. Additionally, we've had a number of comments come in on the last episode, Interview 52, The Plight of Palestinians with Gloria Olivier. Abigail Hall writes, Dear Sean, I have just listened to Interview 52 with Gloria Olivier. This lady's viewpoint is exceedingly biased against Israel. She omitted to give a well-balanced interview, as did not explain why walls have been built to protect people from terrorism. She did not mention the pay-to-slay policy of Hamas in Gaza, which encourages Palestinians to kill Jewish people so that they can have a lifelong pension. The hundreds of rockets that are being fired across the border from Gaza into the civilian population of Israel, making daily life miserable for those people. The fire balloons that are sent across the border, destroying hundreds of acres of farming land in southern Israel. She did not mention how ridiculously wealthy the leaders of the Palestinian people have become on all the foreign aid, whilst their people live in poverty. The lack of democracy and free elections. BDS is Jew hatred in practice. It will also be damaging for the Palestinian people who are employed by these companies. Genesis 12.3 still stands. The Father of Lights will continue to bless those who bless Israel. I do hope that you will be sufficiently even-handed to ask for a comment on this interview for some of the Messianic Jews living in Israel. And then she mentions a couple of names to try. Matthew Elton also writes in and says... American Christians are very aware of the rocket attacks and other acts of terrorism that the Israeli people have suffered. Most American Christians, however, know little or nothing about the plight of the Palestinian people and especially the plight of Palestinian Christians. I don't think this episode is intended to be a comprehensive overview of both sides of the issue. Rather, it is raising awareness about a side of the issue that is not well known or understood by American Christians. For that reason, this episode is serving a very important purpose. I would welcome a follow-up episode that offers the Israeli perspective. I hope Sean will consider that. However, this episode in and of itself is serving a very important purpose by offering a perspective that most American Christians are woefully ignorant of.
I agree with you that Genesis 12.3 is still in effect, but I disagree with your assumption that the modern-day state of Israel under the leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu is somehow the same as or equal to the Israel of the Bible and the Israel of God. I would refer you to Romans 9, where Paul makes the point that not all who call themselves Israel are actually Israel. According to the scripture, the true Israel of God are those who believe in God and his Messiah, and the modern state of Israel has nothing to do with that. God will not bless those who bless the state of Israel. God will bless those who seek justice for the oppressed. If you'd like to hear more from Matthew Elton, I did interview him in number 17, Will All Israel Be Saved?, where he he works his way through Romans 9 through 11 and lays out his case for how God works with his people today. Uh, Additionally, uh, sadly I can't read all these out, but uh, another another comment came in from no less than Bill Schlegel, who uh, I just featured in this interview, and he says it's pretty difficult not to have a biased view about the Israeli-Palestinian situation. I won't fault Gloria for having her view. There are a few things that were simply wrong or strangely worded. Here are a few. Evangelism is not against the law in Israel. Not sure where you got that, Sean. The law for any religious conversion is, one, you can't induce someone with financial benefits to change religion or faith. No one has ever been prosecuted under that law. And two, you can't evangelize a minor without their parents' consent. Otherwise, have at it. I think you would find that most missionaries think it much easier to evangelize in Israel than they would in Arabic areas. Well, Bill, I was trying to think where I had learned that little piece of information about evangelism being outlawed. I think it was on my trip to Israel uh, last year, and I'm not sure which one of the people there said that. I had not checked it out, and so I thank you for the correction on that. Uh, Schlegel continues, The Israeli occupation of the disputed territories is like the Nazi occupation of Paris in World War II. Uh, No. Sorry, Israel is not apartheid, not even close. Go visit one of their main hospitals in Jerusalem. You will change your mind. Uh, Bill, just to push back on you a little bit, the fact is, if you live in the West Bank, you're a second-class citizen. You're not allowed to leave without papers. And your basic freedom of, of movement around the country is significantly limited. So unless I'm mistaken about that, and that Palestinians have equal rights, which I don't think they do, not based on what I saw, it seems like apartheid is a very fitting word for what's going on there, because that is defined by a policy or system of segregation or discrimination on grounds of race. I do get your point that there are Arabs in Israel proper that are legitimate citizens. So, you know, I think that stands that you can't say it's it's purely by race, but there is definitely some second-class citizen, citizenry happening there. Continuing on, Schlegel writes, I recommend that Amer- Americans be very slow to enter into political affairs of the Middle East, Israel, Palestine included. Ask Gloria if her family in Ramallah would like to be under the government of the Arab Islamic Hamas from Gaza. Ask her if her family would like to be ruled by an Arab Muslim leadership from Hebron. You didn't know that there were Arab Christians... And then here's... Uh, he's got three more points here. You didn't know that there were Arab Christians in Palestine? Do you know that there are Arab Muslim citizens in Israel with total, full, complete rights as any other Jewish citizen? 
So much for apartheid. Did you know that there has been and currently is an Arab Christian that serves on the Supreme Court of Israel? He continues, have Arab Christians or Arabs in general been in a better situation in the last 10 years in places like Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, Iraq, the disputed territories, so-called West Bank, not to mention Israel, has been a relatively stable place. And then Schlegel's last point is, no one is saying that it's all rosy for Palestinians in the territories, but I can with much confidence say that there probably won't be significant change unless the Arab, Muslim and Christian side, they admit that a good deal of their difficulties have been from their own mistakes. You can say the decisions of their leaders, if you want. They are not just victims. Much of their situation stems from their refusal to accept a Jewish state, be it their decision to initiate wars or terrorist attacks. They've attacked and lost. The wall, 90% fence, Sean, is there because Arabs from the territories decided to blow up people they never met in public buses and restaurants. There are consequences for such actions. Israel didn't want to build the wall fence, but unfortunately... It's been effective. And, and then uh, last one I'll read out is uh, Candace Walkley writes, appreciate all these points of view here. Glad to hear perspectives from all sides. So if you do have further thoughts on the, the subjects, you can either go to interview 52 and leave a comment there on restitutio.org. It's like restitution with no N. Or inter- interview 53, the one this, this episode. Uh, and... Hey, you know, I don't think we need to uh, get overly emotional. Obviously, it's an emotional subject, but when we're trying to figure out the truth of the matter and what a Christian mindset should be, whether that mindset is to other Christians on the Israel side or in the West Bank, or if that mindset is to the Jewish people or the Muslim people, okay? It's clear from Scripture that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we are to love each other as Jesus loved, and certainly that we are even to love our enemies. So where this whole thing messes with me is where Christians in America are supporting the mistreatment of Christians of Palestine. That's, that's what bothers me. And I'm sad to not be able to offer a nice, tidy solution for this because, as Gloria said and Bill as well, this issue is complicated. Um, and yet it doesn't seem to be getting any better. So I'd uh, love to hear more of your thoughts. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.